When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreit is on the phone. Dane of the podcast, it is America, the Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday, August 2nd, 2021, people. Hope everybody had a great weekend. Uh, and this is the first episode of the Aerator Sports Podcast in the post-KSR era. Uh, but I think you'll see very quickly that this show has not changed. As here are the topics of today's show. We're going to start with Texas, Oklahoma. Because while there is no kind of major marquee signature headline from the Texas-Oklahoma to the SEC story, I do believe we're now starting to see some of the fallout. There were some interesting things that happened this weekend in terms of other conferences maybe pushing back a little bit. And it is clear that the SEC has upset a lot of people and not just Bob Bowlesby and the Big 12. From there, we will talk college hoops. I told you if there was relevant college hoops content, I would get to it. We will talk about Jalen Duran, the number one high school basketball player in the country may be committing soon. I believe I have some new information that is relevant to his recruitment that I do think you are going to want to hear. So Jalen Duran, we will talk about that. We will talk a little bit more recruiting as it pertains to Duke as they pick up two commitments in the 2022 class, the first commitments that will not play for Coach K. And I may have been wrong. They may still be able to recruit at a high level post Coach K. But I do want to start with the Big 12 news. I do want to start with the topic of the day, which is what is going on, Texas, Oklahoma, Big 12. By the way, before we get into that, one quick little mini thing. Um, as I said, this is the first episode of the post-KSR era. If you go back and listen to Friday's episode, I have all the details on the move, on the decision, on what's next for the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I just want to reiterate one thing and then from there tell you one other thing as it pertains to the move. First, as it, I want to reiterate, nothing on this show is going to change. We are still going to talk Jalen Duran. We're still going to talk the big topics in college hoops and college football. Um, we're going to talk recruiting. We're going to have great guests. My buddy Hugh Freeze is supposed to come back on next week, so we're going to keep rolling. Two, I did see some speculation when I made the announcement that the new management in KSR uh, was the reason that I was leaving. And I just want to put any of that to, to rest. I don't want to speculate too much on or talk too much about it, but the new management at KSR was incredible. And the new management at KSR very much did not want to see me go. And so, again, there were some private conversations that were had. I'm not comfortable really sharing the details there. But 
the new management are great people. They wanted to keep me. They wanted me to be part of this KSR, the, the future of KSR. I decided that my future lied somewhere else. Again, I will have details on my writing, my future, what I'm doing as it pertains to the rest of my career. Uh, but the Aaron Torres podcast isn't going anywhere. And I just wanted to say right off the top, the new group at KSR was incredible. Uh, the old group at KSR, Matt Jones, was incredible bringing me in. As I said on last episode, I'm going to miss Jack Pilgrim, Drew Franklin, Nick Roush, uh, Tyler Thompson. But this had nothing to do with a cut or a decision impacting the previous management. It just felt like it was time for me to move on. But with that said, uh, let's move on to the topic of the day. And it's, look, it's the topic in college sports right now. It's the only one that matters. It's the only one that matters for the present of college sports, for the future of college sports, for the health of college sports as a whole. And it's this Texas-Oklahoma news. And as I said off the top, I don't know that there's any big, earth-shattering, world-altering uh, you know, headline that has happened since the last time I recorded, but it is crazy to me how quickly everything came together, and now I do believe people are starting to look around and realize, wow, this is huge, and I do think the SEC, Texas, Oklahoma, are starting to get a little bit of pushback, and when I look at this story, again, the first thing that stands out to me is how quickly everything came together. It was less than two weeks ago that we thought Texas, Oklahoma, Big 12, they're all happy. One big happy family. Oklahoma gets to play Oklahoma State. Texas has its in-state opponents. We got Kansas in basketball. Iowa State is an emerging football power. And everybody's happy. We're one big happy family. Then the Wednesday of SEC Media Days hits less than two weeks ago where we see the initial report of, oh my goodness, Texas and Oklahoma want into the SEC. We all kind of say, okay, could that really happen that fast? Uh, yeah, it did. Because by Friday we got the report that Texas and Oklahoma were planning to ask out of the Big 12 last week. By Monday, Texas and Oklahoma officially ask out of the Big 12. By Tuesday, uh, Texas and Oklahoma are voted in by the SEC, a vote of 14 to nothing, by the way. Wednesday, we find out that the Big 12 has sent a cease and desist to ESPN for tampering with their schools. And then by Friday and Saturday and Sunday of this past week, I think we finally started to see the trickle-down effects, the fallout, if you will, of how big and how monumental this move is going to be. Because I think what stands out to me is because everything happened so fast, I think we were all just caught up with the sticker shock of what it all meant, right? This was the, uh, you know, the couple that meets in Vegas on a Thursday, and by Friday night, they are married at a chapel with an Elvis impersonator marrying them uh, in Vegas. And then Saturday's great, and then Sunday's great, and then Monday you fly back home and you realize, what did I just do? What just happened? And I think that's where the rest of college sports is starting to kind of get to is there was just the initial rush of, I cannot believe this is happening, but now that it has not only happened, not only was it happening, but that it has happened, I think everybody in college sports is like, what just happened? And I do think the SEC, as I said, is starting to get a little bit of pushback. And so let's get into that because two things really stand out about, okay, People are starting to realize the ramifications of this decision. First of all, it appears as though there are a lot of people 
who are very unhappy with the Big 12, uh, with the SEC right now, and it's not just people in the Big 12. It's not just Bob Bowlesby, the commissioner of the Big 12. It's not just Oklahoma State, which is going to lose their biggest rival. It's not just Kansas and Kansas State and Iowa State and Texas Tech and Baylor and all these schools that are going to be left behind. There are a lot of people that realize just how big this is going to be, just how much it's going to change this landscape, and are starting to try to pump the brakes themselves. One thing that stands out, We are starting to hear from multiple reports that all of the other conferences outside of the SEC all of a sudden are starting to really push back on the idea of a 12-team playoff. And the reason being a couple different things. One, there it was supposed to be a, a decision among the big power five uh, you know, conferences as to how it was going to look, what it was going to look like, all that stuff. But you had kind of this quiet four-man committee working in the background, a committee that was, of course, led by Greg Sankey. Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC. Greg Sankey, who was actively recruiting or helping bring Texas and Oklahoma to his league right as he was pushing for an expanded playoff. And so I think now people across college sports are kind of sitting there saying like, wait a second now, you were talking out of both sides of your mouth. So you wanted this 12-team playoff for the health of college sports while you were trying to tear apart another conference and bring its two best properties to your conference. Now, again, I don't totally blame Greg Sankey because I will say if you're Greg Sankey, you have to take Texas and Oklahoma, but I think we're starting to get pushback. I thought it was interesting. I saw Pete Thamel had an interview on the record with Ohio State's athletic director, Gene Smith, who I think you can argue right behind Greg Sankey right now is probably the second most powerful person in college sports. He told Yahoo, he told Pete Thamel, I think the pause button should be hit on a 12-team playoff. We need to evaluate the landscape and what it's going to look like. We still need to evaluate the 12-team playoff. We don't need to rush into that when there's legitimate concerns that need to be addressed. From there... I thought it was worth mentioning the new Pac-12 commissioner coming out guns, guns blazing. He said the same thing at Pac-12 Media Days. Here is what he said at Pac-12 Media Days as it pertained to the Big 12, or to, excuse me, to an expanded 12-team playoff. He said, finally, as I mentioned before, the Pac-12 is in favor of college football playoff expansion. We believe allowing more teams and athletes to compete for national championships is a win for the Pac-12 and a win for our football players. We appreciate the work that was done to put forward the initial 12-team proposal. There is much about the proposal that we like, but the Pac-12 and the other conferences that were not part of the two-year process to create the proposal will need some time to collect feedback from our stakeholders and identify any issues that need addressing. Now look, in the grand scheme, maybe this means absolutely nothing. Maybe it has nothing to do with Texas. Maybe it has nothing to do with Oklahoma. Maybe it has nothing to do with the SEC. But what seems very interesting is that two different people in two different parts of the country essentially had the same message about this 12-team playoff. Is we're not against it, but we need to look into this a little bit more because there may have been some dirty water from the SEC. Now, to be clear, Is this going to stop Oklahoma and Texas from coming to the SEC? Absolutely not. Is it going to keep a 12-team playoff or an expanded playoff from eventually coming? I do not believe so. But at the same time, to get an almost identical message out of Big Ten country, probably uh, the first or second most powerful person in the Big Ten in Ohio State Athletic Director Gene Smith, 
and then the new Pac-12 commissioner. The Pac-12, by the way, the, the expanded playoff probably doesn't benefit anyone more than them. The fact that he is saying that leads me to believe that there is some talking behind the scenes. Greg Sankey isn't the only one getting on phones behind the scenes and making phone calls. It appears as though there is now... Um, if you want to call it collusion, if you want to call it collaboration between the other power conferences, say, look, we can't stop Texas and Oklahoma from going to the SEC, but we sure can stop the SEC from completely dominating the future of college football with an expanded 12-team playoff. And so to me, I don't think it's ironic or coincidental that both of these messages come out about the same time different news outlets. Yahoo had one story. The Athletic had one story. The Pac-12 commissioner was speaking at Pac-12 Media Days. I think this is a direct reflection of everybody saying, oh, SEC, you thought you were going to push us around? Uh, wait a second. We still have some say in this whole thing too, and you better be careful because you push us around, we're going to push back. We are not going to let you dictate everything in college sports going forward. Now, again, I know we have a lot of people in SEC country who listen to this podcast. I am not saying that Greg Sankey is going to lose any power. I'm not saying that Texas and Oklahoma are coming. But it appears as though this idea that Greg Sankey was going to force through a 12-team playoff at the same time that he was recruiting two of the elite brands in college sports to his conference, it appears as though some of these other conferences are saying, wait a second now. Pump the brakes. Let's see what's going on. Let's see if this is what is best for college athletics as a whole and not just the SEC. Fascinating story worth mentioning. Second thing that stood out to me. Again, fallout, problems, issues. Even Oklahoma. Oklahoma had a Board of Regents meeting to basically accept the invitation to the SEC. But you can tell there's some... You know, trepidation on their end, maybe trepidation isn't the perfect word, but there is some, you know, I guess sadness and realization. Like I said, Texas and Oklahoma were, were the, the guy and the girl or the girl and the guy. I'm not naming one a guy and one a girl, whatever. At the craps table, living their best life, whatever. Then they got married. They got married to the SEC. They wake up one day and realize, wow, what did I do? And if you read about the reports from Oklahoma, from their border regents, you realize that they know that they have to do this, but that it, that it isn't necessarily right for their state, right for their affiliation, right for Ohio, Oklahoma State, their biggest rival, right for the schools that have done them well in the Big 12. And what was interesting about it is reading about it is it seems as though Texas is kind of like, okay, we don't mind being the villain. You want to paint us as the bad guy. You want to paint us as the driver of this. Whatever. We're Texas. Who cares? SEC. SEC, SEC. Oklahoma, on the other hand, like I said, there was some real trepidation. I mean, there were legitimate reasons for the decision that was made. It comes down to money. It comes down to a lot of different variables. You know, Chris Plank, the Oklahoma sideline reporter who was on the podcast last week, he talked about it. Not only was it the TV money, but the TV exposure Oklahoma with a lot of noon Eastern kickoffs, 11 local time kickoffs. They were not happy with that. They believe they deserve more primetime games. They believe the fact that the Big 12, there isn't a great team outside of them, has hurt their ability to play those late, you know, those Saturday night, 7.30 Eastern kickoffs. But I also do think that they're starting to realize the ramifications of it. Uh, they're starting to realize that it's going to hurt, again, their state. Oklahoma State, their rivalry. They wouldn't commit long-term to playing Oklahoma State. They said they want to keep playing, but they just don't know. And so when I look at what is going on now with this story, with the Oklahoma side of things, 
I think what stands out to me is the reality that, uh, you know, it is what I say all the time on this show. And what I say all the time on this show is very simply this. Two things can be true at the same time that seem to run counter to each other. And so in the case of this Oklahoma-Texas story, I do believe that Oklahoma's starting to realize what I think a lot of people realize. Now, look, if you're a fan of SEC schools, you're happy. You're over the moon. Your program is going to make, a, a, you know, handfuls of cash and your program is set for whatever the future of college athletics looks like if you're one of those 16 schools in the SEC right now you know you're in a good position going forward even if you're Vanderbilt even if you're Mississippi State even if you're Ole Miss even if you're Missouri you are still in good shape going forward but again when it comes to this decision I do think Oklahoma is realizing that two things can be true at the same time one it's something that we have to do we have to do it for the health of our athletic program our athletic department. We have to do it for the health of our financial situation. We have to do it because the Big 12, those other eight schools aren't carrying their weight. But at the same time, while we know it's something we have to do, it's something that we don't necessarily want to do. And we know that probably for the overall health of college athletics, this isn't our best. This isn't what's good for the overall health of college athletics. It's good for Oklahoma. It's good for Texas. It's good for the SEC. But is it good for the overall health of college athletics? And as I start to wrap up on this story, I do think, you know, I want to reflect on my coverage of this story a little bit because I, I kind of believe that. You know, at this point in my career, I've seen so many different things happen already. I'm not the guy to reflect and get sad and get mad and get angry. Um, I just kind of accept, like, this is coming and it's time for me to adjust, right? Like, the 12-team college football playoff. Up until this year, I was never in favor of an expanded playoff. I didn't love the 12-team playoff. But when it appeared as though it was inevitable, and now all of a sudden it might be on the rocks, I just kind of said, look, if this is coming, this is coming. I can't control it. Rather than sit here and whine, rather than moan, I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to talk about this 12-team playoff and what it means for college football. Same with the transfer portal, right? I was against the one-time transfer rule three, four, five months ago. But you know what? It made you guys more interested in the offseason. It made the, the portal itself a more interesting topic, and so I embraced it. And so when this Texas-Oklahoma news came, I think I focused too much on the who, what, when, where, why, and I don't think I focused enough on the emotional, what is it going to do for college sports, and I come back to what I think Oklahoma is realizing right now is that this is good for us, this isn't good for the health of college sports as a whole. Listen, first of all, I will say this, I'm a little bit of a, a you know old man on the porch, I like my college athletics a certain way. And one thing that I've always loved about college athletics is the regionality of it, right? is the idea that SEC football looks different on Saturdays than Big 12 football. Big 12 football definitely looks different on Saturdays than Big 10 football. Big 10 football looks different than Pac-12 football. We are going to lose a lot of that as, you know, college football specifically becomes this one kind of big homogenized, uh, you know, is it four super conferences? Is it two super conferences? Does the SEC eventually go to 24 teams and add Clemson and Florida State? I have no idea. But the point I'm trying to make is I do think we're losing some of what makes college football so great. On top of that, the regionality not only of the style of play, but of who you play. One of the big trickle-down effects, the state of Oklahoma in football will fundamentally never be the same if Oklahoma and Oklahoma State can't play. I know Texas Tech or Texas A&M and Texas think that they're both fine without each other. Yet at some point every offseason I hear 
Texas A&M wants this game, Texas doesn't. Texas wants this game, Texas A&M doesn't. I remember there was a story. Could they play at Texas Motor Speedway? Could they play on a neutral field? We lost that when Texas A&M left the Big 12. Now, I do believe Texas A&M ended up on the right side of things. They get Alabama LSU instead of Texas Tech and Baylor. But at the same time, you lose that. We've lost Nebraska-Colorado. We've lost Nebraska-Oklahoma. We are going to lose Oklahoma-Oklahoma uh, Oklahoma State. Texas and all their great rivals within that, those states. And so I, I do think there is something that is being lost there. And we've seen it throughout college athletics, not just in football, but basketball as well. Syracuse-UConn used to be a great rival. Doesn't exist anymore. Maryland-Duke used to be a great rivalry in college basketball. Doesn't exist anymore. And so I, I think these are some of the things that people are starting to realize with this Oklahoma-Texas move. I would also say I do think it'll be interesting for the overall kind of you know, I don't know if landscape is the right word, but the overall excitement about college athletics going forward. Now, look, I, we're all still going to watch Georgia, Florida, and, and Georgia, Texas, and Oklahoma, Alabama when they play, but I do worry about kind of the trickle-down effects where I look at some of these realignment decisions, and I know they were for the good of financially each individual school, but did it really help the school itself? Did it really help unite the fan base? Did it divide the fan base? Or is there less interest? The, the program that I use all the time is the University of Maryland. The University of Maryland, in my lifetime, won the ACC in football, played in the Orange Bowl, played in a big bowl game. If there had been an 8, 10, 12 team playoff back then, Maryland multiple times in my life would have gone to the college football playoff. On top of that, they were a great basketball program. About a year ago, I had Gary Williams, their former head coach, on this show. He was awesome, and he talked about the glory years. He talked about going up against Coach K, who we're going to talk about in a minute. We, he talked about going up against Dean Smith, Roy Williams, in the ACC at North Carolina. And Maryland lost a lot with the decision to go to the Big Ten. Now, financially, they've never been more stable. But how great is a bunch of money if you lose all your rivals in basketball. You go to a conference in football that you're never going to win. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it right now. Maryland will never win a Big Ten football championship in my lifetime. Too many good teams. Ohio State, Michigan when they're decent, Penn State when they're decent, Nebraska, whoever, Wisconsin, Iowa. You're never going to win a Big Ten championship in football. The interest in Maryland football from the Maryland fans I talked to has never been lower. The interest in Maryland basketball has never been lower because even though Maryland basketball is good and Michigan and Michigan State and Ohio State and whoever are good in the Big Ten basketball, these fans don't care. These fans grew up going to watch Duke and North Carolina and Virginia and, and Georgia Tech. They don't care about Michigan and Michigan State. And so I do worry about what this is going to do for the overall health of college athletics, whether it is a Baylor and Texas going to the or Texas Tech going to the, the Pac-12. And now all of a sudden, you know, you got to go play at Oregon State. I mean, does a Baylor fan care about playing Oregon State on a Saturday? I don't think so. But if it's for the good of the, 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 the school, they're going to have to go to the Pac-12. And I would also say, on top of that, and I'm rambling, and I'm going to wrap on this topic in a minute, it's also worth noting, you know, even for some of these SEC schools, I talked about it the other day, I don't know that it's good overall for the SEC schools, and I've heard from a lot of you who say this. We got an Auburn fan that listens to me uh, on this show on Fox Sports Radio that reached out and said to me, like, dude, we already had to get by Bama, Georgia, LSU, Florida every year. Now we got to go through Texas and Oklahoma too? What are we doing? If I was voting, I would not vote these teams in. And I do worry about Ole Miss, Arkansas, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee. What does it mean for your football program? Great that you got all this money. 
but what does it mean for the health of the football program overall? So all I'm saying is I think this story is continually fascinating. It is continually evolving. But what stands out to me is I think we have finally started to see the trickle-down effects of what this move means for college athletics as a whole. And I don't think it's all good. I think I focused on the who, what, when, where, why too much, and I did not focus enough on the real-life ramifications uh, uh, of this decision. All right, I am going to uh, take a quick break because that segment went way long. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to come back and talk a little college hoops. Uh, I'm going to talk about the fact that Jalen Duren has officially, I, I think that I have some updates on Jalen Duren that, that will be very interesting to you, number one high school player in America. From there, also worth noting, uh, Duke had a monster, monster haul in recruiting this week. Let's take a quick break and I will be right back. All right, everybody, I am back. Uh, good to be back. Good to be back. And I do want to switch gears to hoops because I don't. I told you and I promised you. I said, look, when the portal stuff ended with Kofi Coburn, when the portal stuff ended with Marcus Carr, I said that we would still talk college hoops as it kind of presented itself. When a story came up, when something that was relevant to this show came up, we would continue to talk about it. And, and I do believe we are getting to that point with a story that you guys continue to ask me about, okay? So I would say that of every story in sports right now, the number one question that I continue to get is, Torres, what's the deal with Jalen Duran? Do you have any updates with Jalen Duran? Can you tell us what you know about Jalen Duran, and as a little bit of a backstory, Jalen Duran. I think most of you know, if you care enough to listen, you know who Jalen Duran is. But he is the number one high school basketball player in the class of 2022, which means he is getting ready to go into his senior year of high school right now. With one big caveat, and that is that he is expected to reclassify. He is expected to graduate high school this summer, and he is expected to play uh, play basketball somewhere other than in high school this coming fall. Now, the reason this story is topical, the reason this story is relevant is two things. Is one, don't know if you noticed, but we're getting awfully close to the start of fall classes for most college campuses across the country. Just about everybody goes back at some point this month. And so obviously this kid has to make a decision. And so it appeared as though he was going to make a decision shortly after Peach Jam. Peach Jam is the number one high school basketball event in the country. And Peach Jam is over. And so we are starting to get to that point where he has to make a decision on what he wants to do for this season so that he can, in fact, either get enrolled in college, get set up with a pro route to make sure that he is eligible for the 2022 NBA draft, which is, of course, less than a year from now. So I've been getting a ton of questions. And what I did this weekend, I really called two, three, four people that I believe are super plugged in in the recruiting game. People that I call all the time to ask about this guy, that guy, this move, that move, this coaching change, whatever. I called two people that I really respect, and I got two very differing opinions on Jalen Duran and what his future is, which I wanted to share with you today because, again, this is what I do. When I get relevant, important information, I share it with you. And before we get into it, really quick, I want to say one quick thing. I still believe that even now on August 2nd, I do not believe that Jalen Duran is 100% positive where he wants to go. I believe that he is still weighing, at least as of right now, all of the options that he had previously mentioned, which includes three colleges, Miami, Memphis, and Kentucky, and two pro alternatives, most notably the G League Pathway Program 
that produced Jalen Green, the number two overall pick in this NBA draft. And so before I get into this, I don't want anybody freaking out. I don't want anybody jumping off bridges if your school is not included with what I heard as it pertains to Jalen Duran, because I don't believe that Jalen Duran is 100% positive on what he wants to do right now. But I do believe that he is going to have to start making decisions here very soon. In terms of what I heard, I heard two different things. Let's get into it. The first one, the first one that I heard is that Miami is still the leader as far as colleges are concerned, but that the pro route, the G League pathway is picking up steam. And so what I want to do is break down that pathway, that decision for Jalen Duran here and explain why I do believe that it makes sense uh, what I'm hearing from that perspective. First of all, from the Miami perspective, I already explained why the top high school player in America would consider Miami. Miami. Miami is not a school that traditionally takes number one high school basketball players in the country, but there are some ties. By the way, they don't take them, especially when Kentucky's recruiting them and Memphis is recruiting them and other schools of that caliber are recruiting him. But the reason Miami's in the mix is very simple. Miami, he is from Philadelphia originally. He has deep ties to the Philadelphia area. And the Miami basketball program, believe it or not, has deep ties. His former high school and AAU coach, DJ Irving, is now on the Miami staff. He and DJ Irving are very close. That has been the reason that they are in the mix from the beginning. And I also believe that Miami actually legitimately don't laugh. And I know some of you are driving around laughing right now. Miami actually has a legitimately good pitch for him. First of all, uh, if you want to say it's because of DJ Irving, he's a little bit new to the staff, whatever. But they have a little bit of a, a Philly South vibe going there with DJ Irving, the top, the, the the elite AAU coach that has come onto staff. Their top player is a kid named Isaiah Wong, who is from Philadelphia, and so they ha- kind of have this Philadelphia vibe going within the program. On top of that, it is also worth noting as well that Jalen Duran, and I told you this a few weeks ago, and some of you weren't happy about it. Jalen Duran really would be the missing piece at Miami. No disrespect to Kentucky, no disrespect to Memphis, but both of those programs are talented, they are deep, and there is not a clear pathway to 32, 34, 36 minutes a game at either of those schools. Doesn't mean he can't be the number one pick. Doesn't mean he can't be developed if you're the the Kentucky coaching staff pitching him that. If you're the Memphis coaching staff pitching him that. But what I will say point blank is if you look at Miami's situation, there is a pretty clear pathway to doing pretty much whatever he wants once he gets to Miami. Think about it. As I said, Isaiah Wong, big wing, talented player. Cam McGusty, talented player. Those were their top two leading scorers last year. They're both back this year. They picked up a sixth-year transfer in the portal at point guard Charlie Moore. Started his career at Cal, played at Kansas, played at DePaul. Now he is at Miami with the extra year of eligibility. And so the one thing they're really missing is just a big guy down low, a guy that they can dump the ball to to get an automatic two points. And if Jalen Duran goes to Miami, we're talking about a situation where I, I truly believe, and I'm not exaggerating when I say, I think he can play 32, 34, 36 minutes. There is no one in the way of him playing as much as he wants, scoring as much as he wants, getting the stats that he wants. And that's something that, frankly, Miami or Memphis and Kentucky cannot sell. It's also worth noting, one other quick thing with Miami. NIL, Miami might be the leader in the clubhouse in terms of NIL swag right now. Okay, They say that you invented swag. They invented NIL swag as well because if you look at what has happened with NIL, I think the pitch from 
especially Kentucky, when NIL came into place, name image likeness, was nobody's going to have a better pitch in college basketball with name image likeness than us because we are Big Blue Nation, because we own this state. We are the professional basketball team in this state. And I still believe, by the way, Kentucky's NIL program is going to be the elite of the elite, okay? At the same time, have you seen what Miami's done in NIL? Uh, what they've done in NIL is pretty insane as I, I don't know if I talked about this story. I can't remember. They had a, a, a local gym owner step up and each member of the Miami football team is going to get, I think it was 5K, 6K in cash this year as part of an NIL deal. And so what Miami is essentially saying is, it's not just the star players. We're going to take care of everybody. We are going to make sure that the backup offensive lineman, he ain't eating you know, the all-you-can-eat buffet at Golden Corral. Okay, that guy's going to be taken care of. And I believe that that is kind of going to be, whether the, the athletic department wants it or not, that is how Miami believes that on the football side, they are going to get back to national relevances Hey, if we can pay above the table, we're just going to pay as much as we possibly can and see where it takes us. And so when it trickle, when you think about the, the basketball program, while Miami is not a great basketball program, I think that's going to be in play there. I, I do believe that well, I haven't heard this officially, but I would suspect that the Miami basketball coaching staff probably looked at what happened with the football program and said, well, wait a second now. If we can find that to take care of our football players, we got to be able to find something to make Jalen Duran a nice little chunk of side change while he is on campus here. And so that is where Miami is in this pitch. It's worth noting, as I just said, that one person that I spoke with believes that the pro route is actually more likely than either Memphis or Kentucky at this point. And I will say this for the pro route, a few interesting developments from the pro route perspective. And that's this. First of all, they did have the number two pick in the draft. That's Jalen Green from G League Ignite. Now, I would argue that the G League Ignite program, if you go based solely on NBA draft prospects, that it was actually a colossal failure. Jonathan Kaminga was expected potentially to go number one overall. He goes number seven to the Warriors. Isaiah Todd was a lottery pick coming into the season. He ends up as a second rounder. Dacian Nix, who was supposed to go to UCLA, ends up not getting drafted after being projected as a lottery pick. And so I would look at the G League uh, Ignite program as a failure. But I think if you're Jalen Duran, you say, well, wait a second now. They had the number two pick in the draft. I can be that guy as well. Again, I'm not telling you how I'm looking at it. I am telling you how G League Ignite is going to sell him. They're not going to tell him about the three guys that didn't get drafted as high as they were supposed to. They're going to tell him about Jalen Green, who went number two overall. On top of that, and I think this is worth noting with the G League Ignite program, they have a new coach. And this, to me, is a big deal. And this is kind of the nerdy college basketball talk that you come here for. But I think it's relevant. The, Brian Shaw was the head coach of the G League Ignite program. He is now out and in his place is Jason Hart. And if you're not familiar with Jason Hart, he played at Syracuse under Jim Beheim, played in the NBA for 10 years, and he has been at USC, Southern California, the last, I believe, eight or nine years since 2013. Why is that relevant? Well, I live in LA, and I can tell you, Jason Hart, I believe, was the most overqualified assistant coach in college basketball last year. He was a guy that should have had a head coaching job four, five, six years ago. I don't know why he hasn't gotten one, but I tell you for a few different reasons. One, I have been to USC practices. Jason Hart is an elite 
coach. Okay, Jason Hart is incredible. You can go, by the way, go on my Twitter feed. I have said two, three, four times teams are making mistakes, programs are making mistakes by not hiring this guy as their head coach. He is that good. Uh, he is a great player developer. He is a great talent evaluator. USC, I talked about it on the podcast during the year. They have been a lot better than I think a lot of people realize. They're actually in the middle of probably the best run in basketball history, in school history, and a big part of it is Jason Hart. Credit to my buddy Andy Enfield, who's been on this podcast great with me great with his time credit to Eric Mobley Evan Mobley's dad who I believe is an elite big man coach but I'm just telling you Jason Hart was the backbone of that program everything all the success that they had is directly correlated to Jason Hart and what I would also say is they've put a lot of guys in the NBA that I don't think a lot of people realize Chemezi Metu is now in his fourth or fifth year. DeAnthony Melton is now in his fourth or fifth year. Jordan McLaughlin is in his third or fourth year. Onyeka Okongwu is in his second year, just finished his rookie year with the Hawks. Obviously, Evan Mobley is going into the league as well. You know who was the primary recruiter on those guys? You know who helped develop them? Was Jason Hart. And I think what he brings to the G League Ignite program is not only a really good coach, he's a really good recruiter. And that would be concerning to me if I was going head-to-head against him with any of the, for any of these college basketball programs because he's a great recruiter. He's going to know how to sell the program. He has a, pa- a track record of not only playing in the NBA but producing pros at USC. That would be very concerning to me. So that is what I heard from one side of the Jalen Duran conversation. Miami is still the leader from the college basketball perspective, but that G League Ignite is picking up ground, especially after they had the number two pick in the draft last week. Quickly, the other side is very interesting as well. And I've heard that it's Memphis. And what's interesting about Memphis is a couple things. Is one, we've talked about Memphis a ton on this show, and every time I talk about them, their fan base gets mad. But, um, you know, Penny Hardaway is selling that program as we are the NBA, we are the best NBA pathway that you can have at the college level, okay? Come to college, go to school, get an education, start a track, start on a track towards a degree, but while you're here from a basketball perspective, nobody is going to prepare you better for the NBA than us. Now, I would argue, again, I would look at the win-loss results on the court, and I would say, don't know that Penny Hardaway is really delivering on that promise, But what I can also tell you is it does resonate with high school kids when you look at what he has done since he got to Memphis in terms of his coaching staff. As I talked about on this show a few weeks ago, Larry Brown is now there. Larry Brown is one of the great basketball coaches in the history of the sport, okay? Be like hiring, yeah, you know, I don't want to say be hiring Phil Jackson, but it's it's the next level down. Larry Brown has won an NBA championship. Larry Brown has coached Allen Iverson. Larry Brown has coached uh, whoever. And you start talking about guys that, that Larry Brown has produced. Larry Brown has coached. He's coached every type of player, every type of this, every type of that. And I do think that's resonating with the Jalen Duran camp. You have a five-time, whatever it was, NBA All-Star and Penny Hardaway. Hey, I know what it takes to get you to play at, at an All-Star level. Larry Brown, one of the iconic coaches of all time. Now, again, I know the win-loss record would reflect otherwise, but I'm just telling you that is their recruiting pitch, and I have heard that it is resonating with Jalen Durant. The other thing, and I tweeted about this, and I guess Memphis fans are mad about it. I was kind of complimenting them, but it was they, they took it as an insult. But did you see this story, which I do think has some connection, that Memphis currently has a head, uh, an assistant coaching vacancy right now and that they are looking to hire Rashid Wallace as an assistant head coach as an assistant coach why does that matter on the surface 
One, it plays into the idea that Memphis is, again, college basketball's closest thing to an NBA program. We're going to train you. We're going to prepare you. We're going to coach you like an NBA team so you're ready to go to the league after a year or two at Memphis. On top of that, and I had somebody suggest this to me this weekend, kind of interesting if you think about Rasheed Wallace's background is how it pertains to Jalen Durant former NBA all-star big man who was kind of a stretch guy, kind of a guy that could could space the floor. What does Jalen Duran want to be? He wants to be a guy, he, for people who don't know his game, I never even described it, Six foot ten wants to be able to step out and play on the perimeter because you have to at this level, uh, you know, at this level of sports. So he's a former NBA big man who also happens to be from Philly. Jalen Duran, born in Delaware, but played his high school basketball for the first two years in Philadelphia, has Philadelphia ties. Kind of interesting, kind of ironic that you're going after a former NBA All-Star big man in Rasheed Wallace, who is also from Philadelphia when you're recruiting, hopefully, a future All-Star big man who is also from Philadelphia. So that is Memphis's recruiting pitch. I am told that Memphis believes they are in a good position. I would mention as well, I've kind of heard this crazy story that I can't really figure out, and I'll just be honest. You know, I tell you what I know, what I don't know. I heard this story that Amani Bates now wants to reclassify and play with Jalen Duran next year at Memphis. Now that makes no sense to me at all because Amani Bates would not. Amani Bates, by the way, for people who don't know, the number two high school player in the class of 2022. If he reclassifies, he's not eligible for the next NBA draft. So I don't really see the benefit of him going to college this year, but that's another thing that's out there. But I'm just telling you, I've heard from one side, Miami feels like they're in good shape. If they can hold off the G League, I've heard from another perspective, Memphis feels like they are in a good position. Now, really quickly, there is one college team that I haven't talked about, and that's Kentucky. And I would just say, listen, Kentucky's not going down without a fight, but I do think their back's up against the wall a little bit on this one for a few different reasons. I think, first of all, they're really good this year. They're really good. They're really loaded. They have a front court that includes a former McDonald's All-American and Oscar Shibway. Uh, Keon Brooks, um, you know, it, it, I think has a chance to be really good. He was the best player probably on that team last year if he would have been healthy throughout the whole year. And so I do think that Jalen Duran's looking at it and saying, you know, I can go to Kentucky and yes, it's the biggest stage and yes, I'm playing Duke and yes, I'm playing Kansas and yes, I'm playing whoever. But I'm also only going to play, what, 22, 24, 26 minutes a game? Now, in the past, that hasn't mattered to Carl Anthony Towns, to Devin Booker, to Anthony Davis. Hasn't hurt any of them. But I don't, I don't know that that's something that he's excited about. And so it's something worth noting. I would say this on Kentucky. I understand that right now within the Kentucky fan base, there is some frustration. And if you want to call it anger, a little bit of anger about how this summer has played out, I don't buy into it. And so why Kentucky fans are frustrated is this, is because Kentucky fans look at it and say, about three weeks ago, Kofi Coburn, second team All-American, wanted to come to Kentucky. And essentially, John Calipari, and I talked about it on this show, pumped the brakes and said, you know what, we would love to have this guy under normal circumstances, we would. But you can't add a seven-foot back to the basket center that's going to completely alter how we play and everything we've been working on. We can't add him in July. But I also believe that there was this kind of narrative and understanding that because of the fact um, that you were backing off from Kofi Coburn, that meant you had to push all your chips on the middle into the middle with Jalen Duran. And I believe there are fans that felt like, okay, we're, we're backing off Kofi. That must mean we're in great position with Jalen Duran. And so one, I don't believe that they are out of the Jalen Duran conversation. But what I would also say is that when I look at it, um, you know, I, I want to say this to Kentucky fans that are listening to this show. 
I don't think it had to be an either-or situation. I think there's a lot of people in the Kentucky fan base, even some guys you know, within the media, guys that I respect, Matt Jones, who I obviously talked about to lead this show, uh, Jack Pilgrim, who I respect the hell out of, that, that felt like if you back off Kofi, you got to get Jalen Duran. I don't know that I believe that. I actually think this team is really good. I actually like how all of the puzzle pieces fit together, and I think Keon Brooks as a junior has a chance to be really, really, really good next year. And so you're talking about adding a freshman in Jalen Duran, and again, you take him if he wants to come. I'm not saying don't take him. I'm not saying back off. But I don't think it's this uh, you know, apocalyptic, terrible situation if he decides that he wants to go somewhere else and play college basketball this year because I think the team's really good. And you start looking at what Jalen Duran can do as a player who isn't going to show up to a college campus until, I don't know, September 1, August 25th, August 21st, or Keon Brooks, who's going into his third year in college basketball, um, I, I don't think there's going to be that big of a gap of what you get from Keon Brooks if you have if you do not get Jalen Duran. And so that's all I have to say about Jalen Duran. I thought this was going to be like a seven-minute segment. I'm going on 20-plus minutes, but that's the update, and I would just kind of end with the caveat that, I'll be honest again, I, I really don't believe that at this exact moment, Jalen Duran knows exactly what he wants to do. So, uh, you know, if you want to take it with a grain of salt, take it with a grain of salt, whatever. I am here to give you updates and, and, and valuable information. I don't believe that there's a definitive leader right now. I don't believe that he's made a final decision, but I wanted to get you that update as it came. One last college hoops topic before we get out of here, and, and I do think it's a little bit of a relevant one, and, and it's interesting, right? It, you know, as a little bit of a backstory, first of all, as I just said with Jalen Durant, high school basketball recruiting season is officially coming to an end here. We're starting to get more commitments, and even as a backstory to the backstory, I think we got to acknowledge something here, and one of my favorite segments on this show is where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, and if you listen to this show, you kind of know the thesis, but the idea is, listen. I get a lot of stuff right when I come on this show two, three times a week and spit out opinions for 45 minutes, an hour at a time. You're going to get a lot of stuff right. You're going to get a lot of stuff wrong. So I'm happy to pat myself back, uh, pat myself on the back for the wins. But sometimes you just got to take L's. And I think I am ready to take an L on one particular topic. That topic is Duke basketball and specifically Duke basketball recruiting. Because if you listen to this show regularly, you know that, look, it's been a big, big, big offseason to change at Duke. Coach K is out. We spent two or three episodes talking about Coach K's retirement, and we talked every single different element of it, his legacy, his this, his that. How will recruiting be impacted once he left? And one big thing that I did say that I still to a degree do believe is that ultimately that Duke basketball is really going to struggle in recruiting without Coach K. And not that they're going to go, they're going to have the 11th best class in the ACC or anything like that, but that ultimately kids are committing to play for Duke because of Coach K, not because of the Duke brand, because Coach K is an all-timer, because Coach K has the pathway to get you from high school to the lottery in one season. He's done it with Zion Williamson. He's done it with Jason Tatum. He's done it with Kyrie Irving. He's done it with RJ Barrett, on and on and on and on and on. And so when he retired, I said, look, I have respect for John Shire, but if I was the, the father of a one-and-done kid, I don't think I would send him to Duke for the next few years because I know what Coach K's track record is of putting kids in the league. I have no idea if John Shire is capable of doing the same thing, even though he's wearing that Duke polo, even though he's walking those hallowed grounds at Duke. 
I can't be putting my kid's future in the hands of a first-time, first-year head coach who's 32, 33 years old. So that was my stance at the time. I still think to a degree I might end up in the long run being right. But as I always say, the show is tonight, and I got to take an L on this. Because if you don't follow college basketball recruiting, two big things happen this weekend as it pertains to basketball. On Friday, they got the first commitment of the post Coach K era in the sense that the first commitment of a player that will not play for Coach K in the 2022-2023 season. It was a kid named Kyle Filipowski by technicality. He is still a four-star in the Rivals database or the 24-7 database. Give it a few days. He is going to be a five-star. He is a stud. And then on Sunday, another commitment as Dariq Whitehead. This kid is definitely a five-star top 10 prospect, uh, originally from Jersey, I believe, but he plays at Montverde Academy in Florida. He also committed to Duke. So let me just say this, Duke Nation, Blue Devil Nation, your boy Torres was wrong. Where Aaron was wrong, Coach K, Duke, not going to be able to recruit without Coach K. Uh, Yeah, I was wrong. So shout out to John Shire. So the first thing is, before we get into it, first of all, these are two really talented players. For people who don't know much about them, Kyle Filipowski, kind of one of those new age big men, 6'11", but he can handle the ball, he can step out and shoot, and as I said, he is really one of the fast rising high school players in this entire class. He's currently ranked in the 30s by 24-7 sports, but if you follow the 24-7 sports rankings, I'm just telling you, give it a couple weeks when they update the rankings, he is going to be a five star, he is a stud, this is not one of those cases where his ranking is going to rise because of the Duke commitment, I think he is that good of a player, he ironically reminds me a little bit of uh, Duke big man Matt Hurt who played at Duke last year, and so really talented player, really good player, and I, you know, I, I just am really... You know, I'm impressed by him. He had he had offers from from UConn, from Syracuse, from Ohio State. Kentucky tried to get into the mix late, but I bring it up to say that this is a very talented player. He's going to be a very good college basketball player. Derek Whitehead, I'll take it a step further. He is a one and done. Big power wing. He's been rated as one of the top high school players in this class, basically as long as they've been ranking players in the class of 2022. And he's really, really, really good. And so now Duke has two foundational pieces for their 2022 recruiting class. They'll obviously get other guys because they're Duke. They're going to clean up, and they're going to end up with a top two, top three, top four class in the country with these two guys as the backbone. Beyond that, let me just say, again, this is a great testament to John Shire and what the future of Duke basketball will look like. And yes, do I make fun of Duke on this show? Of course. Do I make fun of Coach K and his jet black hair? Of course. But do I ultimately kind of sort of have respect for Coach K for doing it for 40 plus years? I do. But I also think it's a great testament to John Shire and his ability to take that torch and take Duke basketball into the next level, into the future. Now, first of all, for people who are going to say, oh, well, it's just all Coach K. It has nothing to do with Shire. It all has Coach K. Um, just do like a little bit of homework and you'll see that you're actually 100% wrong. This is what I love about social media, by the way. Everyone just yells and screams without doing any homework, any research, any whatever, and this is the case. Because if you followed recruiting this summer, a couple things stand out. One, again, you can say that Coach K still has his fingerprints all over the Duke program, but ultimately, these kids are committing to Duke knowing that Coach K isn't going to be there unless he either opts out of his retirement plan or these kids reclassify and neither of them is planning to. We are talking about kids that are never going to play for Coach K. So don't tell me that it's, oh, Coach K, his fingerprints are all over this. Yes, to a degree they are. There's no doubt about it. But at the same time, this is a credit to John Shire, who, oh, by the way, and this is important as well, 
Coach K wasn't on the recruiting trail this summer, certainly not at the level that he has been. So it wasn't Coach K sitting there with John Shire and, and, and you know, being at every game and all that stuff. This was John Shire. This was John Shire going out on the road. Now, were the relationships already built before Coach K retired? Maybe. But at the end of the day, it was John Shire in the Duke polo as the face of Duke basketball who closed on these kids. I should also say, I probably even in acknowledging um, you know, that, that, that he get, should get credit for these guys, I probably also should go back to the original you know, hot take, if you want to call it, that Duke basketball is going to struggle recruiting co- co- post-coach K and acknowledge one thing. John Shire also had a lot to do with a lot of the success in recruiting as it pertains to Duke basketball over the last four or five years, even as Coach K has still kind of sat in that seat as the head coach. It goes without saying that Coach K, look, he's not pounding the pavement the way that he did 20, 25, 30 years ago. Okay, he has been a closer. He has been the guy that comes in with all the brass rings and says, hey, come play for me at Duke. But John Shire has been the guy, especially since Jeff Capel left about three, four years ago, that has really been the guy on the the ground, on the pounding the pavement, doing the things that need to be done to make sure that Duke basketball continues to recruit elite players. And he was the point person on a lot of big recruitments for Duke over the last four or five years. Jason Tatum was one. Paolo Bancaro, the five-star kid who's going to be a star there this year, was one. My understanding is he was the lead recruiter on Cam Reddish. My understanding is while Jeff Capel was the lead recruiter on Zion, John Shire helped close. So we have to give him credit for what he's done. Um, and I'll just say, like, like, it's a great start for him. I don't want to belabor the point. I don't want to talk about this too much more. But what I would also say is I do think it's worth noting that if you want to argue that it's too early to really determine if John Shire is going to be able to keep Duke at that elite level, I don't blame you for that because it is worth noting that, yes, these kids are committed for the class of 2022. They will not play for Coach K. But as I mentioned a minute ago, um, you know, these kids, the, the relationships were starting to be built with Coach K. They know Coach K. They've obviously, if they visited campus, they've probably been on Zooms if they haven't been on campus with Coach K. And so I, I do think it's fair to say that we're going to have to wait two, three years to really see what John Shire's program looks like going forward. Um, it's also worth noting, I, I think we're probably going to have to wait until really the class of 2024 to really figure out, is John Shire the right guy or at least the guy that can keep Duke recruiting at an elite level? Uh, you know, the 2022 class, they're going to commit. They're going to watch Duke under Coach K. Even the 2023 class, it is, uh, you know, it, we got to remember that those kids will probably be committing next summer without having seen Coach uh, uh, John Shire coach a game in place of Coach K. And so I only bring it up because of the fact that I do believe that it won't really be until about the class of 2024, which are kids that are just now going into their sophomore years, that we start to see if John Shire is the answer long term as a recruiter and a coach at Duke. But listen, I criticize Duke for a lot. Want to give John Shire credit for what he did, um, you know, with this recruiting class and everything that he has done. All right, so I think that's it for this episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I'll be honest, I was actually planning on talking this crazy uh, track and field dual gold medal story, but, you know, this show has gone on long enough. You got you got about 40, 45 minutes of good content. This is the first show in the post-KSR era. I don't need to go an hour and a half uh, talking craziness. So I am going to get out of here. Before I do, one, 
I want to say this really quick. I want to thank all of you guys for your very nice words about this show, about this podcast, about what I do. When I announced last week that I was leaving KSR, so many of you reached out uh, that said, hey, I found you through KSR. I'm sticking with you. I'm not leaving the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. So I truly appreciate you. I truly appreciate what you guys are about. Before I get out of here, I want to remind you, make sure you're subscribed. If you're not subscribed, please make sure to go ahead and do so. iTunes, the Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android, the Podcast Addict app is the way to go. Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, please make sure that you are subscribed to this show. It really will help me grow in the post-KSR era. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com that is all for today's show shout out to torn craig shout out to rachel who hates my voice your husband reached out and said he's still listening to me even after the show changed that is all for today's episode of the Aaron Torres sports podcast lucky land casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli i guess aha in my dentist's office More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.